You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demerco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with a bunch of shorter video interviews. And you can also find all of this content on thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. In part two, we're talking to Commissioner Carl Bensel one of five commissioners on the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. And if you think this is going to be one of those dry interviews about the sanctity of federal office or the tedious details of lawmaking, it's not. It's about what you need to know about the latest regulations and rule changes, the future of detention and demoring charges, and how the FMC is moving towards judging shipper carrier contracts. So have a listen and uh, make sure your business doesn't get caught flat-footed. But first up, we're going to examine freight market trends. And to do this, I'm delighted to welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight and Transport Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is the research arm of Bloomberg. Welcome, Lee. Hello, Michael. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Lee, we'll just go straight into this idea of normal, I think, because everyone's talking about things returning to normality. No more black swan events, no more disruption to supply chains. But these things never really go away, even if markets do normalize. Now, there's one disruptor that's out there at the moment, or at least it's an emerging disruptor, and that's water levels on the Panama Canal. Now, I don't want to overplay this because container ships can be diverted to avoid Panama. They can go into the West Coast or via the Suez Canal, or that adds time, of course. But the Panama Canal is pretty critical for a lot of US shippers and water levels are low and dropping. As we move into that sort of pre-peak season period, how are you viewing that as a a potential blow to trade efficiency? Yeah, well, it's obviously going to have an impact because either ships are going to have to run lighter or they're going to have to move longer distances or they're going to have to leverage the land bridge uh, within North America with freight coming more into the West Coast and then moving by rail and then by truck. So this is definitely, you know, it's funny when in your opening remarks, you said there's no more black swan events. I mean, there's always going to be a black swan event. It's just we don't know when and what that's going to be. This drought is, is obviously going to impact trade flows. It's also going to make shipping stuff more expensive. We've heard that there's going to be a surcharge as of June 1st, uh, about $500 per container. So that's going to increase the price that shippers are going to have to pay to move their freight. And it might make them think twice about going through the Panama Canal. It could benefit the West Coast ports. And then it also could benefit some of the uh, rail operators like a Union Pacific or a Burlington Northern or Canadian National or Canadian Pacific with freight moving through their networks instead of that all water traffic through the Panama Canal to either the Gulf Coast or eastern part of the United States. And we've seen a, a gradual shift of the East Coast ports winning more share over the West Coast ports. That really was accelerated during the kind of pandemic-fueled congestion that was created at the West Coast ports. 
But, you know, there's no more congestion on the West Coast as of right now. We think some of that share is going to end up going back to the West Coast. And, and the West Coast probably lost some share because of some concerns over the labor negotiations, which it seems behind us now. Well, I guess longer term, you're going to continue to see changes on where freight lands from Asia. But we don't think that necessarily the East Coast is going to continue the pace of share gain that they've had. And that's going to be you know, driven by a lot of different factors and some of it we just touched upon. Looking ahead to the third quarter ocean peak season, it's a very mixed picture out there. We got these predictions. It's going to be driven by restocking and inventories are declining. And we've seen some of these reports from retailers, which seem quite positive on that front. But then we're already in a freight recession. But is the US heading towards a technical recession? We've got bears and bulls, I guess. What's your take on this? Yeah, so we probably look at the world through a lens of maybe the glass is half full kind of perspective. While there's a, uh, on the Bloomberg terminal, consensus has uh, us going to recession at a probability of around 65%. And there's just three things that usually have to happen for uh, a recession. We need uh, an inverted yield curve, which means that near-term rates are higher than uh, long-term rates. Uh, and we've been there since June of last year. You need a commodity shock. Obviously, I don't need to tell your listeners about inflation. You know, inflation's impacting people around the globe. In the U.S., it peaked in June at 9.1%, and it moved down to 4.9% in April, still well above the Fed's target of 2%. And then you have Fed tightening. So we've had uh, 10 rate hikes by about 500 basis points, and the Fed doesn't seem like it is done moving rates higher. So when you have those three things, usually you have a recession that follows. So I think we're going to be in a technical recession sometime over the next 18 months. But I don't necessarily think that it's going to be a recession that's going to be felt by all people all the time. To your point, we are in a freight recession right now. We could have freight growth and still be in a technical economic recession. That's not unheard of. So even if we do go into a recession, I don't necessarily think it means doom and gloom. You you started the the question with about peak season. And also in the beginning of the conversation, we think that this normalization that we're seeing versus ridiculous comparisons that we had during the pandemic, where rates were unsustainable, demand was unsustainable, now we're becoming more normalized. And I think we're going to have a more normal peak season. And when I say peak season, I'm not saying like like a triangle angle kind of demand spike. I'm talking more of like, like of a hump, kind of like a seasonal increase in demand. And then it slowly comes back down because, you know, there has been some anecdotal evidence in the latest retail earnings calls that we've, we've had over the last couple of days. Kohl's have said that they uh, were able to decrease their uh, inventories by, I think, around 6%. But then you have Foot Locker that's saying their inventories are still too high. I don't think that we can paint a wide brush and say that, oh, the inventory issue is behind us. I think they are still relatively high, but I do think that they're doing a good job at uh, destocking. And the stuff that they need for the peak season isn't necessarily the same inventory that they have. So they are, even companies with high inventory levels are going to need seasonal product, if you will, to make sure that they have what the customers want when they want it. When you look at this sort of picture that we have at the moment of a freight recession leading to a possible technical recession, do you have any concerns? I mean, companies, as you say, it's a very varied picture out there. They go into this in different ways. Some are going in very, very cash rich. Others are going in with 
ever increasing labor costs, maybe increasing charter costs. I mean, we're talking about a very broad church of companies. What happens is it an increased risk of bankruptcies or financial issues? Does this encourage M&A activity or consolidation? Are you looking at this in that sort of way yet, or is it too early to tell? Well, I think it depends on the mode of transportation that we're talking about. Like if we're talking about the North America rail industry, those companies have extremely strong balance sheets. They have plenty of cash on hand. There's no risk of any of these companies having any sort of financial problems. And M&A activity, we don't see any significant M&A activity within the, the large class one rails outside of a token acquisition just because of the regulatory hurdles. But if you're looking in North America at the truckload market, that's a different market. That's a market where it's been pretty barbelled, where you have diversified truckload carriers that operate primarily in the contract market are still doing well, maybe not as well as they were last year, but they're still profitable. They're still generating cash flow, all the good things that you want to see in a company. But then you have the smaller operators that operate in the spot market, and that spot market has been very challenged over the last year. You know, you've seen rates come down considerably within the spot market. If you're looking at rates excluding fuel surcharges, they are down considerably. They're down around 70% year over year. So you are seeing that having an impact on profitability because for some of the higher cost operators out there, those rates are below their operating expenses. And, you know, the longer rates stay here, the, the more you're going to see trucking companies either go into bankruptcy or just parking their vehicles. If it's an owner operator that owns one truck, they can maybe just park their truck and wait this out. Uh, but you are going to see a rebalancing of that market, which desperately needs to happen uh, because a lot of players came into the market when equipment was very expensive and rates were at all-time highs about 18 months ago. And that brought in a lot of capacity. And now that higher cost capacity just can't compete from a financial standpoint. And you're going to see those companies either go away. And if you have a company that is not doing a good job managing its fleet and managing its P&L, you're not going to see another company wanting to, to buy it because you're buying a trucking company for the customers and for the drivers for the most part, or, or maybe the geographic location. All those are reasons why a company might buy another company. But if, if you're operating an unsuccessful company, you're going to find very few suitors out there. So those companies will probably just go away. On the LTL side, it's a pretty much it's consolidated space. They're all pretty profitable. The publicly traded companies, at least most of them, have pretty good balance sheets. Some of the ones that maybe aren't as, as strong as the others have plans in place to restructure themselves. And, and that, you know, you could see maybe some tuck and acquisitions. You know, we've recently seen Knight Swift enter into the LTL market. They bought two regional players uh, over the last year. And we expect them to continue to, to purchase regional players until they can build out a fully national network. So you could see a little more M&A activity there. And on the liners side, they're coming off peak earnings and they have a lot of cash on hand. So they can probably, we're not going to have another Hanjin episode, at least something that large fail, at least from our perspective over the near term, just because of the cash on hand that they're able to generate from those unsustainable rates that we've seen. And, you know, this business is all these businesses that we've talked about that are really heavily relied on the spot market, kind of like liner market or the trucking market. These are boom uh, bus cycles. Liners is probably the one, one of the biggest boom bus cycles in terms of freight. They're, they're creamy highs. 
where the operators are printing money like we saw a year ago. And there are really depressing lows because it, at the end of the day, it's a purely commoditized business. One liner might tell you that they're better because of technology or service, but those are incrementals and their job is to haul a box from point A to point B. And a lot of shippers just look at cost. And it's not an industry that has seemed to breed long-term strategic relationships. It's an industry that seems to just go where the spot market takes them. You sound like a skeptically on the, the likes of MSC to a degree, but I'm mainly thinking CMA, CGM and, and Maersk and their ability to build those long-term shipper relationships because they're trying to move away from that commoditized port-to-port business and move into offering uh, end-to-end supply chain services. Yeah, no, I, I mean, listen, I think what Maersk is doing is their strategy is the right strategy. If they want to provide value adds to their customers and to do that, you have to get deeper into the supply chain. It's not just about hauling the box. But the, the shipping companies that just haul the box, I think those are the ones that are going to have the most risk longer term. But I think the mayors of the world that are really getting deeper into the supply chain are doing the right things because those businesses, A, they have lower cost of capital. You're not buying a $100 million ship and that's an asset that's a 25-year asset. They're buying maybe, I don't know, phone banks and having forwarders and freight brokers. They're maybe leasing out warehousing space. Maybe they're putting together truckers and shippers to haul stuff. They're maybe they're doing pack and pick. You know, they're doing all these different value added that tend to have lower cost of capital than your traditional steamship operator. So Lee, looking at the different liner strategies, Alpha Liner um, put out some great analysis, which if anyone wants to find it, you can find on my LinkedIn account as one of my posts. We had these huge differentials between carrier operating margins. At the top of that list was Hapag Lloyd, and at the bottom was One High and Zim. Is this about very much like with the trucking? Is this about how they've gone in to this downturn, this freight recession? Is it about their cost basis, or is it about the strategy and whether they're getting this end-to-end revenues? Yeah, no. At the end of the day, it's it's really about what their footprint is, I guess I would say. So with Zim, if you look from last year, the first quarter of 2022. They earned over $14 a share. This last quarter, they lost $0.50 cents a share, and it was below expectations. And I think it was below expectations, A, because when you're generating $14 a share, I guess you don't think it's going to be as bad as maybe it could be. And also, Zim had the opportunity to take advantage of the crazy spot market that we saw, and they did some business between Asia and North America. And once those rates kind of uh, normalized and were not as attractive, they just exited those businesses. So I think that had a lot to do with their way their earnings turned out. And so I, you know, I think that's really what drove those sort of disparities where Hapa was not, not going in and out of businesses. They might have you know, increased blank sailings and, and done all the things that they needed to do to manage their capacity during this current downturn but it was nothing maybe as dramatic as what we saw at Zim. Thanks, Lee. Finally, when you're looking forward to the rest of 2023 or even into 2024, and we look at those freight markets and international supply chains, where for you are the known unknowns, if I can put it like that, beyond that uncertainty that we've already discussed today? So I guess the knowns are there's always going to be a tomorrow. 
and there's always going to be a yesterday, and there's always going to be a today. <laughs> Outside of those, I think it's very difficult. I think what we can say with some certainty is that 2024 should be a better year for freight transportation companies from a revenue and earnings standpoint. I think you're going to see, obviously, earnings decline for pretty much most transportation companies outside of anything that they're doing through M&A activity. And that's just going to be because we're coming off of these unsustainable highs of 2022 that for a lot of people is going to be the peak of earnings for a lot of people's careers in terms of working for companies and seeing how well the companies were able to operate because of those ridiculous spot rates that we saw. Now that we're coming down to earth, we all remember the liner industry. Some years it's good, some years it's terrible. And we're going to continue that cycle. I think with the trucking aspect that we discussed earlier, we do believe that we are near a bottom of within the spot market for truckload carriers. And I think we're going to bounce around this bottom for a little bit. And then as seasonality hits and as more freight or as more capacity comes out of the market, as these higher cost operators come out of the market, you are going to see rates get pushed back up. So that could be a positive and and that will drive higher contract rates for the truckload industry. And then you have the less than truckload and rail industries, which have always had pricing discipline just because of the consolidated nature of the business and their ability to raise prices. So I, I think that that coupled with maybe a little better demand, because you mentioned earlier, we're in a freight recession. So we could see rail growth late next year when it comes to volumes, maybe in the second half of next year. I think you could see trucking load growth well before that. And it really remains to be unseen what we're going to see in ocean and air. But there has been some commentary out there that air is kind of stabilized. And that's a good thing because rates are still above pre-pandemic levels. So, so that's a good thing for that industry. And it's really all going to be driven by global activity. And a lot of that will obviously have to do what what China's doing. I think the the reopening of China has been a lot slower than most have expected and really will depend on what the Chinese government does to either accelerate that growth or let the growth happen naturally. I think that's going to have more of an impact to the global supply chain, uh, at least the nearer term, than any changes in production of footprints by manufacturers. In part two of the Freight Buyers Club coming right up, I'll be talking to Commissioner Carl Benzel, one of five commissioners on the US Federal Maritime Commission. So please stay with me. But for now, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight and Transportation Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thanks for having me, Michael. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for Trans-Pacific Lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. On the Freight Buyers Club, we've talked many, many times about detention and demorage charges, the impact of pandemic freight markets on shippers, what many have called a lack of fairness in container line services and charges, and also the resulting changes from all this in U.S. regulations, in particular the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022. 
Central to all of this, of course, is the Federal Maritime Commission, which is a federal agency set up in its current form in 1961, but some might say only now given real teeth to shape maritime trade. That's only what some would say. But let's hear what one of the FMC's commissioners thinks. Our next guest was appointed to the FMC in 2019, but has been shaping US maritime regulations, laws, and indeed philosophy for quite a few decades, including being a principal architect of the Maritime Security Act of 1996 and the post 9-11 Maritime Transportation Security Act of 2002. I'm delighted to welcome to the Freight Buyers Club Federal Maritime Commissioner Carl Bensel. Hello, Carl. Hey, Mike, how are you? Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, we've corresponded, talked uh, in advance a few times through staff, and so uh, it's always nice to meet in person. It's great to have you on. Carl, we've just had a bit of background about the FMC there. You're one of five commissioners at the FMC, and the FMC, although a federal agency, it's not part of the government, it's independent. Can you explain how that works in practice, please? And perhaps also give us some insight into the FMC's role in shipping as a judge. I mean, it's literally as a judge, isn't it? Of what is reasonable in container shipping and the stakeholders in that industry and those supply chains, including ports. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to, Mike. Actually, you said 1961. We've existed since 1916 in some form or fashion. Our, our current iteration is as a independent agency and there's five commissioners and we're, we function similar uh, to the Federal Communications Commission in the United States or the SEC in that we are independent uh, appointees appointed by the administration, usually with the political balance uh, in favor of the president's party. We have a five commission set up with staff underneath us. The chairman is the one that controls that. And we actually have a pretty bipartisan structure. We get along. And so the issues that break down on a more of a personal level than and on a political level, and in some respects, being independent from the agency is one of the reasons why we have that structure so that we can independently be protected to espouse our views. And so my views are my views. I'm here today to talk about the individual views of Mr. Bensal with you. And uh, we have three major functions, just breaking it down. And, and I know you want to get into the meat of your question, so we'll, we'll skip through it. But uh, essentially, I am a judge. And uh, one of the functions we have is to ensure that the industry engages in reasonable handling practices and the uh, handling, storing, delivery, and receipt of the international intermodal cargo. So that's the containerized trade for the most part. And so that is a full-time job. As a judge, uh, we have all sorts of, I'm an appeals position. So we have probably two administrative law judges reviewing cases, and we're set to add another one because of the volume of complaints and investigations that we have going on. Uh, we also have authority to grant a limited antitrust immunity to the actions of ocean carriers and terminals. And so they are authorized to come in and submit agreements that we evaluate and look at and either challenge or, or let go into effect. And so there's a lot of different operating agreements out there, both with respect to carriers and more importantly, probably in the United States now to terminals and shoreside infrastructure. And then finally, we also have some trade powers, a surprisingly strong authority to evaluate the practices of foreign governments to, to determine whether they're they're anti-competitive and unfairly uh, affecting conditions in our foreign trade. So we have a hodgepodge of responsibilities. And clearly, since the, the pandemic, these issues have become much more important. Uh, I thought I would be able to play golf on Fridays, and that hasn't happened for the last 
couple of years. So it's really been a busy time since I've been appointed by President Trump in, in, uh, in 2020. You're not the only one who's given up golf on a Friday. I can tell you that, Paul. <laughs> the pandemic has, has given us all a lot. We've all been very busy since the pandemic started. Uh, things have smoothed out a little bit, but we're still looking back on that period and trying to learn the lessons from it. And I think that's sort of what we're talking about today, because pre-pandemic, the FMC was, I think it's fair to say, a relatively small part of that global trade regulatory environment. But then we had all of that chaos and and you guys have, you've been given more legal and investigatory powers, a much bigger role. You've got more staff now. Is all of this down to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act and, and the pandemic or was some of this brewing before? And can you maybe explain some of these new rules that you have and new powers? Sure. These issues have been festering for a long time. Really, what, what has happened is periodically you'll have some sort of issue. Well, for instance, the Hanjin bankruptcy a few years ago, a dislocated trade and there's been slowdowns labor management challenges on agreements, uh, labor agreements. And there's, so there's been times when really ocean shipping has impacted to the public, the receipt of goods that they use. I think the biggest fundamental thing that really has shifted since I've been working on this is there is an incredible reliance on ocean shipping uh, within the supply chain. And so it's not just retailers being able to get a pair of Levi's jeans to market. It's really components that go into automobiles, equipment for apartment buildings that are being constructed, healthcare equipment. So every sort of segment of the economy relies in the United States to uh, some level of ocean shipping. And if that shipping is disrupted, it really can have economic consequences. I firmly believe that the inflation that we're currently suffering in the United States was in large part contributed to by the challenges we had with congestion and ocean shipping. So. The issues that we faced were a product of recognition of our dependence on that supply chain, and Congress acted appropriately with more legal authorities for the Federal Maritime Commission, more direction, uh, more direction to be assertive and challenging practices. And really, the issues that created this were market-driven. We had a 27% increase in imported containerized cargo during the pandemic. And we had challenges with our existing infrastructure addressing that. And we had breakdowns through that supply chain at various elements that contributed to rates that went up five times and delay times that were three times. So a, a carrier, ocean carrier that would make eight transits a year would only do three. And that delay really had an impact on our economy. And so I think the, the major impetus to what is happening in the United States and, and on our posture increasing importance in posture is that it was recognition that supply chain is very complex and disruption harms our economy in a, in, a, in a very broad way. Do you think the pandemic really brought it home to boardrooms, to the, the corridors of power, how important the container supply chain is to the functioning of the economy of the best, big, biggest businesses, US Inc. indeed? Oh, yes. I think as part of the investigation that each of the commissioners and our agency did, one of the things I looked at was the filings for publicly owned companies at the SEC called 10Qs or 10Ks. And it was just replete with companies that said we lost 10 to 20 percent of business opportunities because of supply chain disruption. Um, I recently spoke at the Construction Industry Roundtable Association meeting, the Secretary of Commerce was there in front of me talking about 
supply chain disruption. And, but they had done a survey and 87% of the construction industry had suffered substantially as a result of supply chain disruption. And so people that had never paid attention to ocean shipping before were, why am I so slow? Why uh, a great example was I had a meeting in Utah. Uh, about the potential of, for an inland port uh, there. And I met with a lot of constituents uh, of the state. And um, I, it struck me when I was talking to home builders, the largest one, had planned to build 205,000 residential units in that region, Salt Lake City region, and that they'd only been able to complete 140,000 because of lack of supplies and products and components to go into that. That's, that's one third of your productivity. So I think that that is the, the fundamental driver that creates a need to reassess what we should do at the FMC and the challenges going forward. During the pandemic, everyone was really focused on detention and demorage charges, and that's still playing out now. And I'll just explain this a little bit for our listeners to put some context into your comments and what these, some of these cases mean and why they're important. Detention and demorage charges, they're basically in pl places in principle to keep cargo and equipment moving with charges applied essentially if you don't pick up your cargo or you don't retain the box. I'm simplifying, but more or less, this became such a big issue during the pandemic when many people complained that they'd been hit with huge bills that were simply unfair. And I think I've heard you say previously that detention and demorage fees were in the billions during at least one of those pandemic years. Maybe you can clarify that number in a moment, but there's a bunch of claims before the FMC right now. We've got claims by lots of different parties, by carriers against railroads, by shippers and truckers against carriers. It's almost like there's a domino effect of legal action up and down the supply chain. And I know you can't exactly comment on ongoing cases, but maybe you can more generally update us in terms of how cases have been judged so far, what sort of levels of refunds or penalties we're looking at. And also, are you going to issue detention and demorage rules? It's been reported that this might happen as early as June. Yeah, we're working at, you know, your uh, explanation was uh, completely accurate and it seemed very simple, but in its implementation, it's very complex. So there's a lot of issues. There was five, I think it was in 2022, $5.2 billion of detention and demerge charges that were assessed. So a huge amount. And there is evidence that some of these were charged unfairly when people were trying to return equipment and for purposes related to the operations of a terminal or a a shipping line, they weren't either able to get their equipment back or, or, or pick up their cargo in a timely way. And so our standard is the reasonableness standard. And we, we've implemented something called the incentive principle. So the, these charges are intended to incentivize the movement of the cargo. And so we're working through those issues. And you, we talked about the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Congress gave us explicit simplified authority and simplified requirements for the industry to comply on the billing of detention and demurrage. And so we have had a number of cases that pursuant to what we call the charge complete process, uh, which is on the www.fmc.gov, if anyone's interested, that outlines the process of using this simplified procedure. And so we're going through over 300 cases right now that have been recognized and are capable of being investigated. I think my last report that $1 million had been recovered. There's only been a few cases that have completely been adjudicated, but over 60 of those cases had been settled because the, the complaints had been brought. So I think we'll see a lot of recovery of penalties and fees that were assessed unfairly. 
And we're also working on other things. We actually, I don't think everyone knows this, but our chairman, uh, Chairman Maffei, ordered an audit of all of the ocean carriers. We're expanding this to the terminals. So we're working with them to assess their process of charging fees. And so my hope is, as time goes on, we'll get to a point where the level of performance on how they assess these is more fair and, and they set up a process that will work. But there is a lot of cases going on and there will be further clarification that will be issued. I'm hopeful this month we'll be submitting a final rule on uh, detention and demerge assessments. So it is forthcoming. We're in the process of considering comments that have already been submitted by the public. And as a result of our consideration of those comments, issuing a final rule for consideration. So there's some progress. I can't get into any specifics on that, the rulemaking itself, because that's under embargo. But I hope that we'll be moving forward on a final rulemaking to clarify that. So we might have rules end of May, early June that clarify a little bit more about detention and demurrage charges. You mentioned audits there of carriers and terminals. What's the timeline on that? So the audits of the carriers are, have been well underway for a year and a half, and it's a continual process where we have a team of staff. And you, you mentioned the FMC. It was relatively uh, underpowered in large part because the industry was pretty competitive. You know, yeah. it was a lot of capacity. It's changed. You know, the, the, the industry has changed. When I first started doing ocean shipping, I think there was 27 ocean carriers that provided international services. Now we're down to nine or 10 that provide international services. So that process is underway. We're w working with the uh, carriers. I can tell you that they have been working in good faith with us, but their performance span a lot of difference. So some companies had to step up to the plate more than others and others were doing a pretty good job. But the sheer volume of assessments of detention to merge were pretty shocking to me. Do you think, Carl, if I might float this, do you think there's a case that carriers and the container shipping as an industry are maybe being judged through this prism of the pandemic, sometimes by people who have not really paid much attention to supply chains? And I've been covering this industry for over 20 years myself, my family backgrounds in it as well. It's a pretty unusual couple of years because most of these carriers, there's a reason why there was consolidation. I mean, and it was mainly because most of them were loss making. There's a reason why there's alliances. It's conceivable that Lions might start booking losses this year. I mean, the, the re Zim results weren't exactly positive. I think we can call them losses. Some of the others did better in the first quarter, but that won't continue for this year. Could be big losses in 2024. We've got a lot more ships coming. There's still, despite all that though, there's still talk of Congress stripping carriers of antitrust immunity via an Ocean Shipping Antitrust Enforcement Act, which would repeal the exemption for foreign ocean carriers from all US federal antitrust laws. What's the progress of that legislation? I guess you're speaking here personally at the Today. Do you, is this a good thing? You know, I don't think it's a good thing. Uh, and you're right. Historically, ocean shipping is not competing on the same basis that other for instance, domestic industries would do. It's, it's a different set of rules. For instance, the ocean carriers from China are, are Chinese government owned. They don't operate with the same set of constraints and challenges that someone in Europe or the United States would face. It's also every nation has a policy to promote their own shipping companies to make sure that they're available for military purposes. The United States, sadly, we've not done enough to, to maintain the same challenge in, in England, you know, uh, it's amazing that these major maritime powers no longer have a liner shipping company, but uh, the Dutch and the 
British, English, uh, and the United States do not have it. So that dynamic has been different. Uh, I would say that the antitrust regulators are entitled to look at any mergers that they want, including maritime mergers. So our authority as a limited antitrust immunity uh, that is governed under our own regulatory process. So since 1997, there have been 31 companies that have merged in the maritime environment and uh, and just 16 entities, I think one was, or 15 entities. So, I mean, there has been concentration used under the existing application of antitrust laws that's been unchecked. So now the agreements themselves, when they're set up, uh, we do have three major ones, the alliances, as you refer to, but they're space sharing arrangements. So they're all almost in some respects anti-competitive, but we are, excuse me, competitive because they provide alternative arrangements for use of space on other uh, vessels. But we look at those agreements very closely. That alliance submits monthly information on pricing and all sorts of practices that we assess. So I think we do a good job of assessing the impact of the agreements. Uh, most of the agreements now are shoreside cooperative agreements to implement pro-environmental policies like clean truck programs. And in uh, Los Angeles, uh, they've uh, implemented uh, the peer pass program to collect an assessment to allow gates to be open in the early evening up until 11 o'clock in order to alleviate congestion, uh, local congestion. So, hey, you know, that's a positive step that the industry is doing, utilizing this. So, again, a personal view, uh, I believe that if we uh, don't have that authority, it'll drive more consolidation and we might end up with four major carriers or five major carriers ultimately as it shakes out. And that jeopardizes all of these services to, to a wide range of ports. I want as many ports being served in the United States as possible. So that's the challenge in a consolidated market. It's very, very difficult challenge to overcome from a regulatory point of view. We've had this in Europe as well. They're constantly looking about how the anti-competitive laws are going to work in relation to international shipping. But let's just, if we may just return quickly to detention and demorage again, because as you say, there's been a number of cases already settled. Now, if someone came to this world from Mars, they would probably be surprised that people could be charged for not collecting something from anywhere when the means of doing so is beyond their control. And this is one of the problems that a lot of people have had with detention and demorage. So since some of these cases have been settled, we've had announcements from ocean carriers that I won't now impose detention and demorage charges for not collecting boxes at US terminals if it was impossible to collect them physically, which has got to be a good thing. But these carry announcements, they've come after these FMC rulings. Do you see this as a step in the right direction? Is this why the FMC has more power? Is this what this is all about? Is this progress? Uh, again, since these are under consideration, it's an evolving issue. Uh, I'll be a little bit more oblique in responding. Uh, I have detention verge. It's uh, the reasonableness discussion is in the eye of beholders. So what each commissioner views is independent, and then we vote and create precedent based on a majority position. So actually, I have an interpretation a little bit different. I felt that the question is whether or not there was adequate notification on pickup and return policies so that the, the public knew what was there and what they were faced with. I, I mean, sometimes you might face a fine from your library for not returning your books, and you can't return the books because they're closed on Saturday or Sunday. And so that's a billing practice that I think is different all over. So I was on the minority on that, uh, that view. I basically said that I think they engaged in a reasonable 
practice and assessing penalties and fines and notice was provided. And a lot of ports are not open for gate services uh, in the United States on the weekends. And they use that time to service any vessels that are in the port, sort of rearrange things. So uh, perversely, I thought there was an incentive to return the cargo on Friday, but that was not the, the interpretation. So that, that's kicking around there. That's under challenge. We also have a lot of issues related to intermodal cargo. You know, I have some personal views on that. I, I believe that if, if an ocean carrier has a contract that includes service to a point in the interior, that our requirements should be applicable to all of those activities, including their subcontractor. So we'll see there's cases pending on that. And that's my legal interpretation of the jurisdiction of our authority, uh, not in the, on the specifics of, of any cases. So those are, there's some issues, you know, there's a lot of gray area here in terms of the policies related to that. And so we need to get uh, a better clarification if it's through the rulemaking process or through setting precedent by decisions. But it is a, it's an arcane debate, but it has a lot of interest. You'd be shocked on how many uh, parties routinely call with issues related to this. I do appreciate you coming on because so much of this is ongoing as we're talking about it. One of the things that I wasn't clear on is whether the FMC's new rules means it can make judgments on the breaking of contracts and whether the breaking of a contract might be unreasonable. I mean, obviously, carriers and shippers have both been known to do this over time. Yes, yes. Uh, if I can put it in those terms, but under the uh, OSRA 2022, you're mandated to provide rulemaking that would define what is considered unreasonable refusal by an ocean carrier, for example, to take a shipper's cargo. This happened with exporters a lot during the pandemic. Isn't this a potential legal black hole of cases and claims, depending on how these powers are used? Or maybe you can just explain what those powers are a little bit more. Yeah, th this is a big challenge. Uh, you know, all of the ocean carriers are required to provide common carriage service. That's to open themselves up and provide a non-discriminatory uh, level of service, uh, both for imports and exports coming into the United States. And so we've had requirements since 1916 on the ocean shipping industry, and the same requirements were basically true to railroads when they implemented the ICA Act for interstate commerce of, of railroad services. So they've been in place. But we, what we've done is we've provided a more flexible environment for contracting, and contracting allows individual arrangements, and, and that's positive. Unfortunately, the industry has relied on contracts that are not contracts in any sense. They don't have any binding commitments to provide performance. And so there's always questions related to whether or not this is unfair or fair. And they, these actions are taken by both sides. Sometimes it's in the best interest of the ocean carrier to keep the contract subject to interpretation or implementation. And other times it's uh, in the interest of the shipper. The past 10 years, more on the shipper's favor. And so those contracts have been built up to be quite flexible. And now we're seeing cases challenging this in light of the market that occurred during the pandemic. And these sort of competing requirements to honor the uh, sanctity of uh, contracting and whether or not someone's engaging in unreasonable practices are competing with each other in a legal sense. I'll leave it at that because this is probably going to be one of the issues we're also, we're required to do refusals to deal, but we also can look at new requirements on contracting itself on what constitutes a service contract. So we haven't gotten there and there's a lot of nuance. You, you brought it up, Mike. It's a, a, it's a tough issue. It's one of these 
really nuanced issues. But Congress intentionally gave us this authority with numerous provisions of law that were included to make us look at unreasonable refusals to deal. Uh, in part, uh, in the United States, we uh, our export cargo is to much lower value than most of our import cargo. So uh, there's evidence that when we saw a 27% increase of import, we only saw a 1% increase of exports. And perhaps that was intentional so that the trade could accommodate the import. We'll wrestle through that. And there's just a lot of issues. Uh, it's something that we're dealing with every day at the FMC. I don't think any of those exporters are going to be struggling to find a box right at the moment. A slightly different market now. The carriers are all desperate for that cargo. Do you think more in generally that uh, U.S. shippers are better protected for these advances that we've just been discussing and these new rules that you guys have? Yeah, you know, I do. And, and I, I, I always want to make clear, listen, these issues that resulted uh, as a result of the pandemic caused congestion and that market challenge that was impacted by a lot of actions throughout the supply chain. We had the Suez Canal. We had the failure of, of Chinese manufacturing for a period of time. We had some actions taken where the Chinese manufacturers of containers who manufacture 100% of the containers slowed down production of containers and all of these uh, intermodal chassis in the United States. We had freight actions and a lot of positioning challenges. So they all contributed to the uh, impacts of pandemic, which created, again, in my view, inflation. But, uh, the, you know, this was a supply and demand issue at its core. And so when it gets out of whack, there has to be protections to ensure common carriage, in my view. And that's my view. And so that's what Congress's view was. They said enhanced protections for U.S. shippers. Again, I, I don't think that the carriers intentionally created uh, this market challenge, but uh, certainly there was profits that were, you know, there were five ocean carriers that made the highest profits in the world. And as you pointed out, rightfully so, the previous eight years, they lost quite a bit of money in the, in the challenge of, of staying. And so, yes, I think that there are greater protections, whether they're going to be necessary always in the future is, uh, is another question. But these issues have come up before. This is not something that's new. It was new in its magnitude during the pandemic. But I think we have a limited number of infrastructure entry points, and that is a huge challenge going forward. It's really not the ships. It's getting it to the point that it needs to get to and how to do that effectively, given the volumes. You, you look at a port like L.A. Long Beach in the United States, and it's stunning. You have six containers stacked up 60 feet high for a two or three miles zone in a radius around that basin, and that's all going into the interior. And I don't think people would understand how big a, a challenge moving that cargo. The biggest cargo ships coming into LA carry 24,000 TEUs of cargo. The first truck load of containerized cargo would be entering into Las Vegas in the interior of the United States before that ship is emptied. That's a lot. That is a lot. And those ports are very, very, very impressive. Until you look at the metrics versus the best in class around the world, and then the productivity levels aren't quite as good. And I think we probably saw that a bit in the pandemic. I want to look in a moment at an initiative you've been driving, which will shine a light a little bit more on how all of this, this structure works for shippers and carriers and ports. But finally, on legislation, what else is in the pipeline? We've got more OSRA powers. 
Have we got uh, those? I think there was one that was looked at aimed at getting marine terminals to submit data about street dwell times for containers and chassis, and then allowing you to publicly disclose any penalties against marine terminals. Is that right? What else have we got to look forward to? Well, let me go back a little bit before I answer your subsequent two questions. Port performance. Once you've seen a port, you've seen a port, and there's a lot of differences. The metrics that you assess all ports by, I don't think they're adequate right now at present in that they don't undertake an assessment in, based on the totality of the needs. In the United States, we are an entry point port for the most part of intense amounts of consumer goods, for instance. And the challenge of moving that, you know, that cargo into the interior is incredibly complex in the United States. We have companies that have own chassis that are different from the companies that provide services and massive railroad services that need intermodal chassis at their inland destinations. And then you compare that to a port like Hong Kong, where a ship comes in and then you put it on another ship. And so there's no particular major market that's being served or uh, Singapore, you know. So you have to look at the challenges in totality because in the United States, the issues related to dwell in our terminals that cause congestion in large part were caused as a result of overbuying a product and not having enough warehouse space to uh, serve it. The shippers rightfully got concerned, started to buy more. Everybody was competing for less space. And so all of these issues need to be uh, looked at comprehensively and why, but that was a decision. They made that decision to buy more and they didn't have the warehousing space. And so, so all of those issues on port performance are mitigated against U.S. ports because of the complexity of the movement structure here. Even in Europe, for instance, in Europe, when you go into a port, it's a much more simplistic operation. You don't have to get a chassis. Most people have their own chassis, pick up at the, the port, and their reliance on big intermodal railroad services to interior points is not there. It's a truck to some other place in, in England. So there's differences all over. Getting to your next point in terms of data, one of the things that I became aware of during the pandemic in assessing this was a system of information for ocean shipping and, and intermodal supply was not good. It was not adequate. And I always say, I use this example ad nauseum and people are probably getting tired of it. But if I order a pizza from Domino's, I know when the order has been taken. I know when it gets out of the oven. I know when it's on route. I know where it is. And, and I usually get a picture of it upon delivery. Uh, and, and that's a $10 pizza. And for, you know, a $50 million container shipment, if I wanted to get planning information from ocean carriers, what I would get was a picture of the Pacific Ocean with two ports and a notification that it was 32 days transit between those two ports. And so it's insufficient for the purpose of providing information on in-transit visibility. And if I wanted to see where that vessel was, I would get a dock, not when it was going to arrive or information about it. Terminals all have different standards. So the Maritime Transportation Data and Initiative is an effort after consultation with the industry. We had uh, 18 meetings, 80 participants providing information from all segments of the industry about the quality of information that they provided, what they'd like to get, and how they got their information. And so we took all of that and we came up with some recommendations. They're posted on a website on the www.fmc.gov on, on my commissioner page. So it's a report with recommendations for standards to provide requirements for performance of in-transit visibility and planning for ocean carriers 
and to harmonize the system of information at ports so that cargo interests could get standardized information about processing of their cargo and access into and out of the terminal. So uh, we're in the process of going uh, out for comments on that. Uh, we're putting together some questions. Uh, we'll be sharing it further with the public. And the intent is to get a standard in this area. And I've been talking to my European colleagues and there's no international standard that would implement in-transit visibility and a, an incredibly, incredibly important tool to international trade. So that's where we are with that. And, and to your last point, uh, you've been talking to my counsel, John Young, in, in, in preparation of this call. There's a markup right now today that's going on and there's a, another bill. Ocean Shipping Reform Act with modifications. So we, we are working uh, closely with chairman and ranking members of the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee and the two members, Congressman Garamendi and Johnson, who have been working on these issues. So we'll see what emerges. We just had new legislation. We haven't even digested all of that. And there's going to be a lot of effort that is as needed to get that to the finish line, but there is still interest in consideration of all of these issues, even as the market has cooled. And, and my hope is that for all the market participants that things pick up this last quarter, I'm still hearing from shippers about challenges getting everything they need. And so it's sort of an uneven recovery in the United States. We've seen a lot more cargo coming into the Atlantic. Now it's cooling down. We'll, so we'll see, see how the market goes. I tend to be an optimist and think it'll, it'll pick back up in the last quarters this uh, year because a lot of that oversupply is retreated, but we'll see. Uh, and then, as you say, there are new vessels coming on board. However, if we still have the same challenges processing the vessels into the intermodal cargo system of the United States, it doesn't matter how much your capacity is. We still have all of these uh, challenges and that's why a system of intermodal cargo information needs to be implemented. Let's come back to that. I just have to say one point, because I've been speaking to European ports and shippers a lot the last couple of weeks. They would kill for your railroad system. They really would. You speak to some of these guys, they're like, we have to get past four domestic governments, all with their own passenger priorities, just to get a, a block train from, say, Rotterdam down to, the, down to Southern Europe. And it's really difficult. They would, they would love your railroad network. But let's turn to the, as you mentioned there, the Maritime Transportation Data Initiative. Totally agree with you. We desperately need more transparency in, in this industry. When you complete this process and you get all these people on board, will you be able to hold people to account in some way? How does it work exactly? So we have a, a lot of authority right now. For instance, we're auditing the carriers on detention and demerge, probably use the same sort of process. Because one of the requirements for data is to provide this information publicly to have uh, a transparency on changes of uh, position and so to know when these operational decisions have been made to, to change structure. So we'll be able to get that information and, and assess how reliable it is going forward because there are requirements for publication and storage and maintenance of that, of that information for the public. So I, I feel that we're positioned to be able to make sure that the industry is complying with the requirements. And I was recently in Brussels and Antwerp and Rotterdam talking to ocean carriers and to the European Commission about what we're looking and I think they were very interested talking to the, the port of Rotterdam, their representatives said that they have technology in place to, to set up information, but that half or, or close to half of their personnel spent their time calling around trying to get that information. 
the quality of data is not not adequate to the level of technology that we have in place now. So it's sort of a black hole when you enter the, the maritime transportation system. So the hope is that uh, our efforts will have international benefit and we're looking at utilizing existing information that's there, uh, not requiring someone to provide anything new. It's, it's really how to harmonize it and, and make sure it's available to provide real-time transit and estimated arrivals and planning information on shipping. Okay. I will, at some point down the road, are we hopeful that we'll have some sort of database where you can access carrier schedules and people can plan in advance better? And then would we be able to hold or would shippers be able to hold, say, carriers to these schedules if, if that's the aim? And then I guess that could then feed into contracts. It could. I, I mean, I think the carriers are, you know, the car what we looked at in terms of the system of in-transit visibility was directly from the Digital Container Shipping Association, which is the nine largest carriers. So we've been working closely. Frankly, I, I took uh, most of their work product. You know, I, I don't have any uh, pride. Uh, this, these are things that they suggested themselves that they could do. So yes, we should be able to get information on their plans. They know when they're going to make those changes. And so the requirement that would change is not that when a decision is made, they make it publicly available. The ocean carriers and the terminals would be required to provide public information, some information for inter intermodal rail subcontractors in the United States. And so that's a publication requirement. And we require each port to take this information. And to the extent in the United States that they're an operating port, they would use it as an operating port. But if they are a landlord port, they would have that information. They would make it publicly available. So that you could go online and evaluate what uh, ocean carriers were providing services three months from now to plan in advance for the first time. I mean, it's incredible to think if I want to go to Disneyland in the United States, I can go online and just say, okay, they have a flight on this day at this time and that's it. And you can't even come close to that for the shipment of millions of dollars of cargo. So I believe we will be able to hold them to those requirements really is what requires no new information. It just requires transmission of information from the operations side in coordination with vessel movements and making that information available on a uh, more or less real-time basis. I did speak to the Port of Rotterdam myself quite recently as well. I think that would be utopia for them because they did explain, uh, as other ports and shippers have done, that a lot of these systems just don't talk to each other. So if there was something like this that worked, I'm sure it would be beneficial throughout this ecosystem. When will we expect to see something, do you think? So uh, we're working on some questions that we'll give to the public to consider different things. I want everyone to look at specifically at the recommendations and make comments on those. And maybe there's things that need more or less. I have been working pretty closely with the industries affected. So I have routine meetings with our railroads and our carriers and the ports. And so we'll continue that dialogue. But there'll be some questions that will be provided to the, the public for comment. And we'll take a look at those questions. If, if there is a sufficient level of momentum for doing this, uh, I believe that uh, we've relied on voluntary standards and information for a long time, and it's not adequate. As I say, a voluntary standard is an oxymoron. You're either a voluntary or you're a standard. We need to take that next step. The hope is over the summer, we'll collect additional information and comment and see uh, whether adjustments need to be made. And then hopefully 
sometime at the end of the year, we'll be able to to consider going into a rulemaking process to establish a standard if there's a level of support that I feel comfortable with on the recommendations. Best of luck with that. And thank you also for like a skilled gardener slashing your way through the weeds of some of my multi-pronged questions today. Much, much appreciated. Federal Maritime Commissioner Carl Bensel, thank you for joining me on Freight Buyers Club today. Nice to meet you, Mike. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.